Hi, this is Emily Amaria Albi, and you're listening to Nostalgiaverse. Greetings, Earth. Welcome to the Nostalgiaverse. Hello and welcome. I'm Kat, and with me here is Alex. Hello. Today, we've got a very special guest, um, well-known in a number of circles, animator, singer, songwriter, Amadia. Hi, it's great to be here with the both of you. Hello. You've done a number of really cool stuff. Uh, in your career. How did you get started in animation, CGI animation? Oh, gosh, I always wanted to be an animator. Ever since I saw my first Disney movie, and I thought, I want to be a part of that somehow. And um, I got involved in computer graphics because I was always pulled to computers. And when I was nine years old, back in 1979, (laughs) I decided to save up cans and bottles. Growing Growing up in Michigan, they have a 10 cent refund on that. Mm-hmm. So after about a year of collecting cans and bottles in 1980, I had enough to buy my first computer, which is a TRS color computer, and it had 16 kilobytes of RAM on it, which I opened promptly opened up and then replaced those chips with 32 kilobyte chips and then eventually soldered another bank of 32 kilobyte chips on top of that piggybacking to have 64 kilobytes worth of memory. And then that time... That was quite a lot. That was cavernous. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's really cool. Thanks. So you actually started uh, kind of modifying your own computer at age 10, essentially. Mm-hmm. Pretty much and learning how to program and machine code. And yeah, <laughs> it, was, wow. it was a lot of fun. Wow. That's amazing. So from there, how did you get into doing it professionally? Well, I moved out to California to be a to be a harper, a performer, and I did a lot of things. I, I got a job done in El Cajon and was running sound down there. And I just I kind of got, I don't know, nostalgic from Michigan. And so I left California thinking, you know, the animation industry really hasn't released any powerful movies. This is probably about 1993-ish or so. I thought, well, let's see if I can make a difference and I got a job at the computing center at uh, Eastern Michigan University, first a call center, then working my way up to be a, a microcomputer technician. And then The Lion King came out. And that fell on me like the proverbial ton of bricks. <laughs> I can well imagine. My best friend had to shake me after the end of the movie. She was like, um, hon, uh, the movie's over. It's time to go. And I was like, huh, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> So I was like, I've got to get back into this industry because I really I hadn't been able to make headway in it. Previously, I'd lived out there about in Los Angeles about a year and a half, two years or so. And it turns out that the company that was doing the animated storybooks for Disney Interactive, mm-hmm. that company was called Media Station. And it was actually based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is right next door to where Eastern Michigan University was. Oh, wow. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I couldn't animate you know, to save my life because I'd done some computer stuff to that point, but I hadn't done traditional paper animation other than a class that I took in college before I left college to apprentice to a flute master in the Virginia mountains. Mm -hmm. So I actually set up a course of guided meditation and study of Disney animated movies with one of those old VCRs that you can scrub frame through backward and forward. Mm -hmm. And over the course of about a month, was able to build up enough of a demo reel so that when I submitted uh, the reel to them, they saw enough promise in me that they hired me. Well, that came the real problem. Um, because here they are. I sat down my first day of work, my own animation table and, you know, my own computer for animation. And I'm like, I got my first scene, my first scene folder. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't do this. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to walk into uh, into John, was John Lucas's office and say, gosh, I appreciate your faith in me, but I... I can't do this. But I thought, no, wait, I'm going to draw at least one drawing at this really cool animation table, and then I'll quit because i got to draw at least one drawing. So I drew one drawing, and I was like, no, let's just do two drawings. Okay, let's do two drawings. Now let's animate this scene and let them fire me. That way I won't have to quit, right? <laughs> so I animated the scene, and it was in Jan Penkowski's Puzzle Castle. 
And it was this lady carrying a stack of dishes and she flies up into the air, really squashy, stretchy, Fleischer type animation. And we're going through dailies. Person of the company's name was David Gregory. When this came through there, he stopped it. He was like, hey, wait, 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 who did this? And I was like, oh crap, here it comes. I'm going to get fired in front of everybody. Isn't this going to be great? And he said, we need more animation like this. This is good stuff, (laughs) which completely (laughs) took me by surprise. And I was like, oh, cool. I guess I'm an animator now. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. Total 180 to what you expected. Oh, it it was fantastic. I was so petrified. But I mean, you've got to, you've got to have the courage to do what you think you cannot do and just own it, whether it's sink or swim and, People have said, oh, I bet you had this talent built into you. And I'm like, no, I'm just too dense to recognize a setback when it hits me over the head. So, yeah, keep at it. If if you've got a dream, don't take no for an answer. Failure only happens when you choose to stop picking yourself up off and uh, dusting yourself off and keep on moving forward. Right, right, exactly. Uh, Recent movie, speaking of animation, uh, Zootopia. One of mm-hmm. the key song in that is Try Everything. Absolutely. And yeah, it's absolutely true what you're, what you're saying. It falls right into that. It's absolutely true. I'm so glad they had that as one of the primary messages you know, know, within that movie. Right? So daring and it's serious. Hats off to them. Oh, really, yeah. Really impressive. Big time. Big time. As little bitty bunny and she becomes <laughs> a police officer in the biggest city in that entire culture. So it's like wow <laughs> and yeah it's dare to dream dare to try that's, and that's that's the whole message there and that's been my motto that i've written into well things ever i mean it's been recorded in my books this mm-hmm. book is dedicated to everybody who dares to dream out loud mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. looks like the what was your first professional as far as the animation that you've done what was your first pro- uh, professional project that first professional project would have been through Media Station, and that would have been Jan Pinkowski's mm-hmm. Puzzle Castle. Mm-hmm. After that, I did some work on 101 Dalmatians animated storybook, Hunchback of Notre Dame animated storybook. Then I moved uh, – there was a couple of other smaller projects in that mm-hmm. uh, in that group. But then I moved over to Activision, where I was lead animator on Apocalypse. Mm. It was a great project. I loved the people that, uh, that I was working with. I even still keep in touch with one of my best friends there. Um, from that time. Um, uh, what what all were you doing on uh, Apocalypse? Well, we were using 3D Studio Max. I think it was even before it was released. And I was just, honestly, I was doing the idle animations and just the generic animations because they had a difficult time locking any final assets. To oh, the point, wow. right, to the point where I was like, you know, guys, I want to be on a project that ships. And uh-huh. they wouldn't let me off of that project and I said, when is, when is this project going to ship? And they gave me a date. I said, okay, that's my end date. That date came, and they hadn't even locked a single level. They kept on just re-envisioning it, and I'm like, this is stupid. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and so that, that date came, and they're like, I was like, all right, hey, last day. And they're like, what? I was like, don't you remember? And they're like, oh, you were serious? And I'm like, yeah. And they were like, you want to work from home? And I'm like, no, I want to work on a project that finishes, that ships. Um, nope. So I I left. <laughs> However, nostalgia, even back then in like 96, 95, whenever that was, mm-hmm. they wanted me to do some color cycling animation. And so they tried to get me to do that on uh, Photoshop. And I was like, I've got a better tool for this. Can I go home and bring it in? So I brought in my Amiga 1200. <laughs> well, the art director was like laughing at me, making fun of me. He was like, oh, that's such an old POS, blah, blah, blah. So I showed them it was an animation program called Brilliance that had two branches to it you could activate the full color version or the color palletized version which was designed perfectly for doing color palette animations mm-hmm. and i did this thing that they would have given me an entire day for in like half an hour 15 minutes mm-hmm. and i was like see this is why this is cool and afterwards the art director who had previously been making fun of me turned to the director and said hey man can i get one of those <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> well, hey, you proved him wrong. And you, you proved that, yeah, this older equipment can do the job. 
depending Often. on what the job is, you don't throw away that old equipment because you never know when you're going to need it. <laughs> Absolutely. And so much of what was done back then was done without the thought of having to protect it from hackers and all these other types of things. So it was so much faster yeah. than the stuff that we have on machines that are thousands of times faster than that old hardware. Mm-hmm. I long for those days. Computing back then was easy. It was simple. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. On your IMDb, it lists a few things that you've done. There's also Babylon 5. Ah, yeah. I loved Babylon 5. I loved the show. I loved the people I was working with. Honestly, when people ask me for, for what is my best, most enjoyable experience working in film, television, or games, mm-hmm. it has to be my time working on Babylon 5. John Copeland was the producer on it, and he is, to date, the best producer I've had the chance to work with. We were pioneers back then. We were working on deck alphas and working with things like FX32, which was a program that scanned a 16-bit program and recompiled it to operate for a different processor core. Oh, wow. Because this is running on deck alpha. It was an alpha processor mm-hmm. running Windows, and so it can actually cross-code on its own for a different processor type and, and kind of OS type core. Wow. Yeah, so it'd be like if you had a program that was written for a Macintosh and you mm-hmm. just ran it on a PC and the PC analyzed it and recoded it and said, here, this is how it runs on a PC. And the next t- couple of times you run it, it'll be optimized and run even faster. Wow. And, you know, we had people working for us who had never worked on, on computers before. One guy in particular, he was a photographer. Mm-hmm. So he understood how light worked. Mm-hmm. And after he got the handle of what the different buttons did, mm-hmm. his shots started to look better than the rest of ours because he was a photographer. He understood what made something look good, framing, lighting, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, light and shadow, contrast and all of that. Yeah, it's... I, one of the things that I loved, those of you listening, this is back in 98, okay? One of the things that I loved about Babylon 5 is they got the physics of the space battles correct. Yeah. Which you don't normally see in Mm sci-fi. They still act like airplanes flying through the atmosphere. But in this, you have one of the Star Furies just going gangbusters and then just whips around and is still going in the same direction at the same speed. It just flips around the other way and shoots what's chasing it. Mm -hmm. I was like, they did it right! I was just, and a lot of the character animation with some of the CGI characters was like, wow. Oh, thank you. At that time, too. My forte there brought me in for that. I didn't do much in terms of the Star Furies or the the other animations that we had, or the other space uh, machine animation. I pretty much just did uh, the character stuff whenever they had characters. But we had meetings with the JPL, which was local to, it was not too far away from where we were in North Hollywood. Talk, we would talk with them about how this would actually work. And so that was a real help. My biggest role there, other than, you know, the character work in the in the series, was in working with them on uh, Third Space. Mm, yeah, the, the one of the TV movies, one of six TV movies that, is, that went with the series. Yeah, and one of my favorite shots, and there was a shot that they didn't think could be done with the technology that we had. It was one of the shots where Sheridan was supposed to be flying through these series of tunnels out of the artifact with that, as they nicknamed it in-house, the evil seafood salad, um, (laughs) chasing him. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, the live-action plate that I had been given was just the actor, Boxleitner, standing on a dolly. Mm-hmm. being pushed, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, a certain direction with a camera also on a dolly being pushed in the same direction, same speed. So the result of this was him basically not moving on screen, just kind of shaking a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, oh, we've had this culmination of, of this thing building up to this moment. This has to be epic. And I, I explained the idea to John Copeland, uh, my producer, as far as how I could rig this guy with inverse kinematics and the spacesuit that I built. And have him flying out there and he said, no, no, that'd take a week to do. We haven't got that. And I'm like, can I stay late off the clock? I will do this for free. And if you don't like this shot, please let me know. And you can just you know throw it away and I'll do the other thing. But this I'm giving to you for free because I know how cool this can be. Mm-hmm. So I rigged up the suit. Gosh, this was well before we had any kind of the easy stuff. I mean, these kids nowadays have it so easy. 
back then we had to use a thing called Puppet Master, which do your if you do a search for Lightwave and Puppet Master, you'll be like, how did people work this way? <laughs> um, this was even before Sock Monkey. Wow. Yeah, that was New Tech's answer to Puppet Master. So, anyways, we uh, I, I got this thing done, and you know, if you've seen the, the Made for TV movie, you'll know the shot that I'm talking about. He's flying yeah. through these tubes, and his legs are flailing as the rocket pack you know throws him left and right. Sent it into the to the farm to render. Came back the next morning, built an animation of it, and showed it to John, and he was floored. And I'm like, see, this is what we can do if we don't buy into the limitations that everybody else thinks that we should have. And he's like, by gum, this is amazing. And I'm paraphrasing there, of course. Yeah. And that shot made it into the final. Nice. Yeah, I actually have um, all of Babylon 5, the series, and the PB movies on DVD. Oh, and very I've seen cool. them. A f- I've seen them a few times. I've I've sat and watched them, and it's it's just it's that good. I yeah. love that series. It was a great series. And any of you who who are listening have not seen that, go watch it. <laughs> I am not kidding. Go watch it. <laughs> right. The computer graphics definitely looks dated, but we were we were bleeding edge there. We we were doing things that you couldn't do at the time, and that's the problem with all all this CG even that we're doing nowadays. Uh-huh. You know, give it ten years. And the yeah. best-looking thing today will still look dated in 10 years. Some of it still ta- stands the test of time. I mean, some of the, especially some of the animations, it still looks really, really good. Even mm-hmm. dated as it is, it still looks really, really good. Like mm-hmm. the animations of the shadows. Mm. Oh, God, those things are creepy. <laughs> but in the best way possible. <laughs> that was intense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Funny story, I went to an anime boss and somebody, two people dressed up as uh, a Vorlon in a shadow costume. It was great. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I actually at NorwestCon one year saw somebody in a Vorlon full encounter suit. I was like, wow, dude, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, a couple of years ago at Phoenix Comic Con, they had a 20th, it was at the 20th or 25th um, retrospective of Babylon 5. And so I was there as a speaker, um, getting a chance to to see these folks I had worked with and the actors again. It was just like, oh my God, I missed you guys so much. That's cool. That is very cool. Another thing that you've got listed on here, Battlestar Galactica. This is the 04 series. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that one. Well, that I was hired by Kelly Lee, or well, introduced to the people mm-hmm. by Kelly Lee Myers, who had read my books uh, that I'd written when I was up in Alaska. He liked my work, and his nickname is also Cat. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well. anyway, he's a great guy. I still keep in touch with him. Brilliant, brilliant mind. Anyways, uh, working with him and Gary Hutzel and and the rest of the folks down there. Yeah, that was it. Was really a great experience. Uh, I was actually just brought in to to help out in-house on season three of that with the with the silent centurion animation that had been done by oh gosh i think it was atmosphere vfx was the company up there anyways and so like for the first couple of weeks there they didn't they didn't have work for me to do and so i prepared a lot of puzzle pieces which i like i like to work in a way that you can fit things together so that you work smarter not harder and in the end i actually took over the majority probably like 95% of the shots for the silent centurions because of how this was streamlined together when we were doing the episodes that the Emmy got or that the that the show got the Emmy for, what is it? 302, 303, I think it was, mm-hmm. or is it five or six? I forget. Anyways, Exodus, I think was the name of the title of it. Mm-hmm. They were trying to do bounce radiosity lighting, which is where you have each light throws a photon. And when it strikes a surface, it scatters based upon the, surface properties and emits a bunch of other photons which creates this beautiful realistic look but takes forever to uh to do and so i had taken this concept that had been widely used at the time which is where you attach a bunch of lights to a null and you spin that null in a certain way so that it doesn't produce you know recognizable noise patterns it gives you the same sort of look as radiosity bounce lighting uh-huh. And what I what I did was I took the dome the dome images that they had, uh-huh. and treated them like stained glass windows, uh-huh. and had the spinning light ball, which I kind of modified the math for the for the spinning so it looked even better. Uh-huh. Raycasting light, raycasting shadows through that, which gave the result of the full 
radiosity bound lighting, lighting with an image instead of just kind of general ambient occlusion style lighting, which is what the spinning light previously had produced. Mm-hmm. Without that, I was told that they wouldn't have been able to finish the rendering with the render from that they had at the time. Mm-hmm. Anthony Alvaro was my supervisor. Or no, he was a production coordinator. Mm-hmm. And he even said, yeah, there's no way I could have finished that at the time. Because, I mean, we're looking at computers that are much, much slower than they are nowadays. And the great thing about raycasting lights through that is it actually generates true specular highlights. Whereas working with radiosity lighting from an image, you don't get, at least with LightWave, you didn't get the uh, the specularity data from that. Mm, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> you can, and if you watch the the series, you can kind of see differences in the centurions between the first two seasons and then season three there's a there's a there's a difference and they do look better in season three i do remember that well i tried to make them as as powerful as the actors that we had as like you know mm-hmm. edward james almost eddie or you know mary mcdonald just really bring out the acting mm-hmm. capabilities of these beings and there's a lot of really good actors in there. In fact, one of the people, one of the guys that was in it was in the original Battlestar Galactica from 78, yeah. Richard Hatch, mm-hmm. whom I actually got to meet him at Jet City Comic Show. Oh, that's 20, so cool. In 2014, he, he and Dirk Benedict were there. Oh, that's awesome. And I got, I got to meet the two of them, so yay. <laughs> Well, hanging out in the lunch lines and talking with the actors, even the, you know, the top stars like Eddie and Mary and, you know, Katie, oh, they were so down to earth and so pleasant and just wonderful to be around. I mean, yeah. they, were, they were great, great people. And and it shows in their work on screen, the kind of person that they are, even when they're playing really tough, intense or bad guys, you can kind of you watch and you can see the subtleties of their own personality, you yeah. know, kind of in the background a little bit. And you can tell if somebody's a really nice guy or if they're genuinely mean. <laughs> yeah, well, in, even in, in a lot of that. In the in the books I wrote on animating, the evil characters, the bad guy characters, if you make them just evil, then it's a cardboard cutout. Mm-hmm. You have to make them relatable to your audience. Mm-hmm. And if the audience feels like they could follow this path or succumb to this person if they were mm-hmm. met in the dark alley like and it's like, yeah, I could totally like get on with this person. We had coffee together. Mm-hmm. Then you've made a connection. And that's what the challenge of acting really is. And an animator, you are an actor. You just, mm-hmm. instead of acting with your body in real time, you're acting with a pencil or acting with a mouse or a stylus or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have to bring across not just their actions, but their intent, the emotion, the just mm-hmm. the whole presence of being. Right. And make them real even if it's just pixels on a screen. Right, and and try to hide things that that animated character doesn't want to be seen and hide it just barely good enough so that the audience, if they're sharp, can pick it it out. The audience then puts themselves into it. They have an active role in in the observing of this. They're not just a passive observer. They're actively observing this, and they're like, wait, 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 I know it's going to happen. But you can't make it easy for them to get. Otherwise, it's, yeah. it's indicating. It's, subtlety is a really good tool <laughs> mm-hmm. when it comes to acting. It's a really good thing to have and yeah. be able to do. In the interim, apparently, according to your IMDb, you were assistant animator on Dinosaur in 2000. That's correct. Yep. I had wanted to work for Disney feature animation since I was a kid for as long as I can remember. And mm-hmm. on a whim, kind of, I'd already applied this to Disney about three or four times previously. Mm-hmm. And of course, didn't get hired by them. Mm-hmm. And when I applied for them as, as Babylon 5 was winding, was winding down, they hired me, which was really sad around Netter Digital because the guys had gotten things like Max Steel and these other things because they were like, hey, finally, here's some real juicy animated roles for you to sink your teeth into. And I'm like, guys, I am so sorry. I get hired by Disney. I've got to go. When I was hired by them, I was told that it's a formality since I hadn't done any feature work for them or feature work on record to be an assistant animator for a couple of weeks and then we'll bump you up to animator. And like a week after I got there, they're like, no more promotions. And I'm like, ah, oh, well. (laughs) 
But I got a really great lead animator on, on Yar. I still keep in touch with him. He's still a very close friend, mm-hmm. Tom Roth. He still animates every day. He let me take reins on some scenes and stuff. So I did get some, I did get some chance to animate um, full character and facial and stuff, uh, even though my, my old name is top of the uh, alphabetical top of the uh, assistant animators. Mm-hmm. And that's something I'm not, by the way, any listeners out there, if you search my old stuff, you'll find that on a Timothy Alby. I am now Emily Amadia Alby. I'm soon to be Emily Amadia King. Mm. And yes, I happen to be transgender, but uh, yeah, that's just, it's just part of, hey, just part of me. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I've known people who are transgender, including my soul brother who lives over in Chicago area. For me, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's just you are who you are. In uh, oh, four. sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to jump tracks. Do we want to oh, go no, back to cool. Dino? And no, okay. it's it's cool, it's cool. So you did Dinosaur, mm-hmm. and then in two thousand, and then there's this little independent project that you did. <laughs> which I actually have the DVD of. Awesome. <laughs> I finished watching that an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very cool. Well, that that was a test. See, after Dino, I left Disney to create an animation studio with my best friend and my old agent and uh, a friend of theirs. I needed some time to clear my head after we had some you know, intense projects, so I was going to go on a sabbatical. I had always wanted to go on a sabbatical, so I packed my stuff up in my little Volkswagen Cabrio and drove up to Alaska. And while I was going to be there for a year, I was planning on painting, writing books on animation so that other people could make their dreams come true as well. Because, hey, you know, if, if one person does it and it dies with them, as it were, where's the benefit in that? Right. If I leave a trail of breadcrumbs, then if you really want to be an animator more than anything else and you put in the work, you've got to show up at the page and you've got to learn to love whatever work has to be done. And of course, then you reap the benefits. After about six months there, I'm like, I have the focus without anything pulling at me because I was living about 20 miles north of Fairbanks, Alaska in a cabin in the swamp. And it was a one room cabin, no running water, an outhouse. And I had to go get water every week in uh, these big five gallon pails out of a free flowing artesian spring. Oh, wow. I've been told stories by people while I was at Disney and, you know, when we were sitting around having story creation sessions with the people at Exile Films, mm-hmm. that I would walk 100 miles. I would mush 100 miles to see those stories. They t- These stories that these guys are talking about, these things that they would do if they ever had the time or in their minds, the hundreds of millions of dollars that they felt they needed to do these stories. And I'm like, technology is going so fast that the laptop that I had at that time was just slightly under the SGIs that we had to work on Dinosaur a few years previous. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I, I, I've tried to tell people that technology had evolved, and they're like, no, I don't think it's that, that far yet. And I just said, what else am I going to do? I may as well do this as a test to put this out there so that at least somebody's done it mm-hmm. and other people can then pick up that torch and run with it and make their own stories, even if they don't have anybody else in their corner that they can depend on, that they know is going to get the work done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be a lot of hard work. And yeah, it's going to take a lot of time. And no, it's not going to be Disney quality, but it's going to be good enough mm-hmm. to tell the story. And really, it's all about the story. So yeah. that was Kaze. Kaze Ghost Warrior. And in fact, that was, it was 04 at a convention where you and I met, mm-hmm. where I picked that up that uh, DVD and then here 12 years later you remembered me at the convention back in September that we were at I was like oh my gosh (laughs) well I do my best and if anybody's out there that I haven't remembered I apologize there's so many thousands of tens of thousands of people that oh I know you know when you're guest of honor and I was I was flown to Spain in, in 04 to speak with people from Pixar and Brown University at the European Association of Animation Film. You meet mm-hmm. with so many people, you know, you just, you do your best. And I just, yeah. I, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I knew you. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're doing, getting ready to do one of your panels and you're standing there and you look over and you start waving at me and I'm like, me? <laughs> and you're like, it's you. And I'm like, hi. 
<laughs> and we were clear across the room from each other. And then, yeah, we got started talking, and I ended up doing that one drawing for you. Thank you. Giving you the drawing. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and this was, you did this in 03? Yep, 03 to 04. I gave myself six months of production because mm -hmm. that's what... At the time, I understood the standard production for a 22-minute or half-hour with commercials television show to, to be given. Mm -hmm. And if you watch the DVD, you'll see Timothy Albee, my old name, amongst all these different slots that I'd, I'd sit there and watch my favorite Pixar movies and mm -hmm. Disney movies and jot down the, the positions that people had. Mm -hmm. And I, I put myself in to all the positions that I undertook as kind of a tongue-in-cheek Sort of like wah wah wah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was supposed to be funny. It was supposed to be like it was supposed to be dorky, geeky, nerdy humor. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I grew up doing is when we would go to a theater to watch a movie, I would stay all the way through to the end of the credits, and that was my way of showing respect and giving homage to the literal village that it took to make these movies. Absolutely. And, and I respect that a lot. It got to the point where I was recognizing individual names mm -hmm. on there. It's like, oh, I remember this person did this, 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 and this. and Or this company, there's some of the same people did on this project. And so I started remembering. And back in the 80s, I started watching a show called Movie Magic. Hmm. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I don't. It was, they basically, it was all behind the scenes on how they did the special effects in the various scenes from fire effects to practical animation effects, CGI, from matte paintings to back then it was blue screen to different things. And there's one particular thing that I remember distinctly, and I don't remember what movie it's from, but it's this black rhino with glowing eyes and it's charging towards you and there's this like clouds billowing off of him and I know how I, they showed how they did that scene hmm. and it was an animatronic stuck submerged in water in a tank of water with the camera right up against the glass at one end of the tank and they were pumping white paint through tubes into and then out through pores on the animatronic on the skin and so as he was charging forward this white paint would billow out into the water and it looked like clouds wow it was really cool how they did that and they showed some of the stuff that they did with like star wars and some of the some of the other cgi sci-fi stuff page master there was, I think they, they covered that one. There, there was a bunch of different stuff that they did. Included things like voice acting and how they, cool. they added, how they do traditional animation versus CGI animation and voice acting and putting all of that together. And it was just, it was really, really cool. And I really got into it, researching it, looking at all of this going, wow, they did that. And, and how they do like in live action shows when they show like gunshots and people getting shot and how they mm -hmm. do that with the squibs and the little packets of, of uh, fake stage blood that they would then uh, blow with the squibs to make it look like mm -hmm. they've been shot and how they did all of that. So it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> and I was talking to one actor who actually went through that. I think it was Dean, actually, Dean Aylesworth, uh, up in Vancouver. And he said, yeah, you feel it. When those squibs go off, you feel it. <laughs> There's a metal plate between you and that little elect uh, little charge that's set off with just a spot of electricity because you've got a wire that runs through. But you, even with that metal plate between you and it, you still feel it. Oh, no doubt. So you, you, so you know, okay, yeah, I've been shot. Time to fall over. <laughs> <laughs> And you react to it. It's natural. Because I knew that they had those metal plates there to protect the actor in question so that they wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt them. And I asked him, I said, do you actually feel it? He goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really cool. So, yeah, I got into a lot of this when I was growing up, just really loving how. Then the more I found out about how they did it, the more magical it became for me. Absolutely. Like the olden days where they had to fake it. They couldn't do this stuff like now you want smoke, you just set up a particle generator. 
Mm-hmm. But like you were talking about the, with the rhino and, and pumping mm-hmm. white paint out through the pores mm-hmm. or how we had to do smoke and flames and all that stuff like that back on Babylon 5 and mm-hmm. even to a degree a Battlestar. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Getting into the film industry, movies, television, animation, there's so much there that, that can be done now with, with modern technology, both live action and CGI. There is. Rather than... And this has been something that's been wearing at me because there are schools that I could teach at. But to train people up to go into Hollywood where it really is, it's almost getting overpopulated with artists. Mm-hmm. And to be a cog in a very big wheel, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could recommend that anymore. Um, back, back in the heyday, oh, heck yes. But now there's so many people wanting to go in there. But what I'd love to see what I would love to see with all my heart is to see groups of people getting together mm-hmm. and making their own projects. YouTube is beginning to foster this with YouTube Red. There's so much creativity and story talent and acting abilities and all these other things that people can really develop. And of course, you have to bear in mind one very important thing. Mm-hmm. There is a certain number of bad whatevers in you before you start to get good. Mm-hmm. So your job and doing whatever that is, whether it's writing books, animating things, doing movies, making your own live action stuff to submit to YouTube, you've, your job is to get those bad ones out of you as quickly as you can, so then you can get on to the good ones that hide just behind the last bad one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've been going through in recent years, due in partly because of Kaze and a couple of other things, that I've found is independent film. Mm. And there are film festivals all over the world for these Mm -hmm. that they can, you get awards for them. There's one recently I actually got to talk to and do an interview with Eric Law Anderson, who did The Looking Planet last Mm. year. It was released and over 50 awards at various film festivals all over the world. That's wonderful. And it's phenomenal. I, I wrote a review of it. And it's a great film. I came across and actually met Dean Ellsworth and the director, Trevor Maroche, through finding out about an independent film. It's actually a trilogy, web trilogy, being done in Vancouver called Mr. Somebody. Hmm. And I did a review of part one and got to to interview Dean and Trevor, and we're going to interview Dean again next week. Oh, that's fantastic. Just, just him by himself for over his career. So, yeah, and Dean's a great guy. He's, he's really nice and loves what he does. That's awesome. And, yeah. And, you know, to, to, to reiterate to your, to your listeners, mm-hmm. the first time you do something, the question mm-hmm. is, can you do it mm-hmm. after you complete that project and you've got to complete it somehow, complete it, ship it, send it to a film festival. If we're talking about a film, mm-hmm. then, and only then does the question become how good can you do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My soul brother is, he taught himself CGI animation. And, uh, so he's started working on some projects that he's hoping to, actually put out there as full-fledged projects that I'm going to be helping him with. So oh, that's he, and wonderful. Are, he, he and I are working together on that with a couple of other people uh, that to is do wonderful. that. Yeah, and it's all do, being done with CGI animation. And, that's great. Uh, well, I wish you both the absolute very best. Thank you. Going back to some of your uh, other projects that you've done, I see... There's Lost Treasure of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> the tone sounds like it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got some actors in there that I really do like, but they were not, oh gosh, how do you say this? They were not showcased to the best of their ability. My work on that was to animate Quetzalcoatl, which I'm fairly happy with what we did within the time frame and the budget frame that we did. Mm-hmm. But the other project that we did for, for them, the um, uh, well, we actually did a couple others. There's Fireball, which, mm-hmm. again, same thing, not showcased to the best of their abilities. Mm-hmm. But the one that I had the most fun, oh, and then there was also What If mm-hmm. with John Ratzenberger. Mm-hmm. 
if and and what if is available on Netflix streaming, or at least it was, and mm-hmm. that's a good kind of like wonderful life story. Love that. Oh, okay. And then the other one, the last one that I did in filmmaking for a while was Jerusalem Countdown, mm-hmm. which that was cool. I had a chance to work with the Six Million Dollar Man. Oh um, wow. He was a fantastic actor. It's like, he's himself, he's himself. As soon as the cameras rolled and I called action, he was his character. And I'm like, holy Katzenberg, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's really good. And we had some fun with, we had uh, Zerk balls. Now, instead of doing squibs with, you know, plastering over explosives for the little tiny poofs of paint and whatever, they mm-hmm. fill paint balls with these little things they call Zerk balls. And I don't know what's in there, but it's like a paintball and you shoot it and you hits and it makes a spark. Mm-hmm. Well, they were shooting in these old, old houses, and they were going to be doing... And people lived in these houses, expensive, mm-hmm. and they hit the wall with the Zerk balls as one of the guy was... Uh, one of the characters was supposed to be running out, and the Zerk balls embedded themselves in the plaster <laughs> and then Oops. exploded. And I'm like, that looks cool, but uh, it's going to be expensive <laughs> to repair. Ah, <laughs> uh, Whoops. <laughs> Yeah, the big shot there was the, uh, the the plane exploding, which I had I was really happy with that. I loved how it happened, and I even I was working with a guy that I eventually left the film industry to work with alongside at one of these companies that works for the DARPA function, defense and, and research and stuff. And so I had worked with him to see exactly how a plane would explode if it was done in this particular fashion, the initial explosion atomizing the fuel and then the, the wing expanding since where the, the, the fuel is stored. So we had it looking exactly right. And then they're like, no, change it. And I'm like, Oh God, why? So after that, I left the film industry for a while and worked for a company called A2T2, mm-hmm. which is short for advanced anti-terror technologies. Which is really just hysterical because I'm like, you know, the, the meekest, mildest person you could imagine. And here I'm working for a company that's an anti-terror functionality. Now, granted, what I can talk about is that I wasn't, what I can talk about is that I was working on a project for rehabilitation for the wounded warriors, which made me feel great. Helping the, the folks who come back from places where they see things that no human should ever see. Mm-hmm. people treating each other the way that people shouldn't treat each other mm-hmm. that their great spiritual leaders tell them they shouldn't treat each other and they're doing it and mm-hmm. thinking it's a good thing yeah. and helping them recover from that felt like this is healing because mm-hmm. i feel like if i'm here on on this planet it's to try to bring good and mm-hmm. and light and so yeah that sounds really cool sounds like a really awesome project to work on well, it was neat, and I got a chance to learn programming because they were like, do you know programming? And I'm like, I will. <laughs> <laughs> and it just goes to show that anybody, if they really set their mind to it, can learn anything. And it had been decades since I had done even basic programming, oh, wow. um, the, ac- the acronym. And so I, I picked up um, C Sharp and Java, JavaScript, and was coding in Unity. And yeah, it was really interesting. Mm. Very cool. So what are you working on now and what are your future projects looking like that you, for the foreseeable future at least? Well, for the focus of trying to do something that spreads light and can't be turned around and used for negative purposes, I'm a singer-songwriter. I write songs. And granted, I'm at an older age now than I was when I was younger, but I really think that it's important to, to bring to do something that helps make this world a better place in a way that that can't hurt somebody. Uh So I'm writing songs that, I mean, they're hopefully going to be enjoyable songs. Uh Um, My first album, actually my second album Uh came out last year and Uh it's called Not Quite Human. Uh And the, the focus of that is that when you turn on the news and you see how people are treating each other, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm like, if that's what human is, I must not be human mm-hmm. because I feel the pain of, of both sides. Yeah. I can empathize with, with both points of view. And I'm like, oh, my God, this has got to be so ho- horrible. So I know that there's got to be other people out there that feel that 
they're just kind of one step outside of how people are treating each other. A line in, in one of the songs is, and someone's got to speak for those who will die if humankind implodes. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's pop song, it's rock songs, some R and B and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. hopefully, if you if you sit and listen to the music and the lyrics, mm-hmm. that I'm hoping that it will touch a place in people's hearts, and mm-hmm. maybe 10, 20 years from now, maybe we'll have made a difference, just like the books did. Mm, yeah, sounds awesome. Thanks, and I'm br- um, bringing back the animation into that too. Tell us about this. Bringing back the animation so that. As a singer-songwriter, there's so many, so much going on out there. Oh, yes. But as a singer-songwriter who also can animate, there's a, there's a little bit less of that. So mm-hmm. I love the concept of the gorillas. If you're not familiar with them, they're a great cartoon rock band out of England. They're a little hardcore, so if you like, if, if you like really heavy punk-type music, you'll love that. What I would like to do, and what I am doing, is doing something like that, but making it so that it's kind of like with that, the music that I'm putting out. So I've got a cartoon singer-songwriter, and the high conceit is that she knows. I'm writing her so that she's a cartoon, that knows that she's a cartoon, and she's got her own Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page, YouTube channel, even MySpace. She's got a <laughs> MySpace account. And uh, people will be able to interact with her, and I will be writing her from the point of view that she's a cartoon character who comes from these worlds where these ideals that we're supposed to behave like mm-hmm. and she comes to this world and she sees people and these are her thoughts and reactions to mm-hmm. to that cartoons are kind of like the modern day fairy tales they tell you that the morality plays oh you know? yes and they 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 encourage us to to choose right and to do good and to help others and so yeah as far as being able to make a positive difference through the music and through this character whose name is Dream Song, and her handle is uh, Real Dream Song. If you go to Twitter, it's Real Dream Song, and same thing on Facebook, and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. She's just getting started. Mm-hmm. Still working on tests because I still want to leave a trail of breadcrumbs for others to follow to do their own dreams. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to take this moment to say, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, be sure and use your powers for good. If you're going to be an animator, use those animator powers for good, <laughs> hopefully. So I'm using Blender, which is an open source free program that anybody can afford. It's a powerful tool. And as I'm researching Blender and doing these tests and stuff, her YouTube page is going to be populated with these different tests. Facial animation, fur, right now we've got a test up there right now for full character animation with a, a test of a, of a body type that's different than I have done in Kaze, more mm-hmm. humanistic. I think I'm going to be going back to the more Kaze type characters, mm-hmm. cartoony type things, and uh, we'll see how this evolves. Sounds awesome. I've seen the, uh, the animation test, full, full character animation test, it was really cool. Thanks. It was really cool. I liked it. Eventually, I want to see if we can have this be so that when I'm doing a live show, that we'll have the Dream Song character right there on screen. Or maybe, who knows, if holography comes forward to do this all in real time. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> We're living in the future. This should be awesome. I mean, we should we should all be having a lot of enjoyment and respecting others um, to have their own flavor of enjoyment. Yeah. That's one of the things within geek culture that spark of light that spark of creativity and light that's always there no matter how dark the story may be yeah there's that spark there and it's that's in any sci-fi story there's that one good character that one those values that are those good values that people do hold dear but don't necessarily practice all the time it helps to, it's like a compass reading. It helps to keep mm-hmm. us on course, to get back on course. Mm-hmm. But when, and I'm, I don't know if you've seen this as well, but when I've gone to subculture conventions, mm-hmm. sci-fi, blah, 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 I see people able to bring that into being. Mm-hmm. And you know you've gone to a great convention when it has been so positive and the people you've been interacting with, even if they haven't been top shelf and doing what it is that they're doing, whether it's art, music, or whatever else, it creates such a positive environment that you actually experience culture shock. 
coming back to the outer world. Yeah, yeah. But and the things it, that I've seen in a lot of conventions is mm -hmm. that you have these artists who have been inspired by other artists and can watch how-to videos on YouTube mm -hmm. and have become phenomenal videos, or sorry, phenomenal artists, mm -hmm. the likes of which I think could give professional artists to run for their money. Mm-hmm. There are so many out there, uh, so many people who are, are really, really good at what they do. And just nobody knows who they are because they've, they haven't had the chance to really shine, mm -hmm. except just in their own you know, things that they do. And it's one of the reasons why I like sites like DeviantArt mm -hmm. yes. and YouTube and Vimeo is for a lot of independent filmmakers. Vimeo is a really good tool as well and it's connected to youtube because a lot of the stuff from vimeo ends up on youtube as well it's sort of a crossover thing uh, yeah. between the two sites you go through the independent films a lot of them you'll find on either their actual website or you'll find them on youtube there's a lot of them i found on youtube that are just like blow your mind mm -hmm. <laughs> um there's one called amp that it's a, a cgi robot amidst fully live action and it's really nicely done i'm like yeah. i want to see more of this and i and there's other ones too that i've seen that again you've got cgi elements in the midst of live action that it's it turned out really cool and it's photo real right but even amongst these like really top top tier level of mm -hmm. things that have been independent mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's also the people who are just starting. And that's what I was oh, yeah. trying to address before is that even though you have people who are just, just getting their feet wet, yeah, we appreciate the work that they do. We see the, the level of skill and talent that it goes into it. And even if the beginners may not be up to Disney quality, they will so long as they keep at it. Oh, yeah. And it, you look at you get like fan films like in the, uh, among Star Trek mm -hmm. fan films. And Star Wars fan films, and some of them, some of them are, you know, the production values and costuming is, and uh, sets and so forth might be a little bit cheesy, but there's a story there, and exactly. that's what matters. That's right. what matters. And yeah. so you watch them, and you're like, this is cool. It it's cheesy, but it's cool. <laughs> and then right. you get into things. You know, you find stuff that some of these these fan productions and independent productions. Some of them are just fans. Some of them are fans and professionals. Some of mm -hmm. them are all professionals. So it runs the gambit. And it's, right. you'd be amazed at what you can do in the woods near your house with a couple of friends and a camera. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's talking to your listeners out there. It's like if you want to be doing this and you haven't had experience and you're like, oh, I don't know if I should do this because I'm not a professional – Mm -hmm. Do it because the only way to become better is to get those those beginning things out of you. Just do it and move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. Do it because you're you're in love with it and you have a story that has to get out of you. Mm -hmm. I'm a third generation lifetime artist myself. And oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, both my parents were artists. My dad did mostly technical drafting. My mom would do everything from people portraits and landscapes all kinds of different stuff animals her father in college painted still life flower arrangements and mm. did a couple of paintings of sailing ships the big tall ships mm. my father's father was a photographer wow, so cool. yeah that would have been back in the day wouldn't it have oh oh yeah he was world war ii uh, he was a World War II vet, and he did photography over Northern Africa during the war. And he kept oh, wow. up with it as he kept up with it as a hobby throughout pretty much most of the rest of his life. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, I've got I'm a third generation artist on both sides of the family because photography is an art form. It really is. Absolutely. Also, multi generational craftsperson because there's on both sides of the family, both grandmothers and. Whether it's cooking or making stuff, it's still crafting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you have to start with a blank page. That's, oh, why yeah. I, that's why I wish that more people would, would get into art-type things because it mm -hmm. gives you the courage to come up against the blank canvas and mm -hmm. have the courage to take that step 
And yeah. every step where you could ruin that drawing or painting or stew or whatever. Yeah. My son is a fourth he's now fourth generation artist and would be considered second generation writer because I am working on writing a few books, actually. I've got several stories rolling around in my head that's equivalent to about almost fifty 50 books at this point Fantastic. i'm trying to get them all out there it's like oh my god they're all arguing over okay i want to be written next no i want to be written next it's like ah right. well, <laughs> so again, i know exactly what that's like for for those of you who are artists and writers out there it's you have the pictures and stories arguing over who gets to be done next yeah i know exactly what that's like <laughs> right and those quote-unquote overnight sensations oh you know they are 10 years in the making on average oh yes one of my close friends writes a science fiction romantic comedy with really strong female characters. Her name is Ginny Koch, and mm -hmm. she's done these Touched by an Alien series. Mm -hmm. You know, she busted her behind for years, decades, like probably I think it was 12 years. And then she finally got that, that break, and she doesn't let up. She keeps on working her tail off. And I think she's on book, what, 17 now is her contract? I think 12 is published. And for those fans of you out there who like Amadia, A-M-A-D-H-I-A, -A -A, um, me as a singer or want to follow things, get book 10 in her Touched by an Alien series because I'm actually written in there. <laughs> and it's pretty, pretty, it's pretty true, pretty straightforward. That's cool. That's very cool. It's, wow. It's amazing how when you go out and you get online or you go out and about and you go to these conventions and you meet people. It's amazing some of the connections that you can make with people or just, you know, going out in the public or just doing what you do. Yeah. What, no matter what that is, the, the connections with other people that you can make and little nods that people can give to each other in their own projects. It's like, yeah, I know this person over here. <laughs> So that's really cool. Yeah, well, that's the that's the power that I see within so many of these quote unquote fandoms is that mm -hmm. we become fans of that which we ourselves create. Oh yes, this is absolutely true. We're a group I, of people who were inspired to do by other people doing, it, and that just oh, builds. Oh yeah, and one of the things that I've come across uh pbs actually did a commercial that's talking about inspiration and there was this uh lady who was inspired by a show that was set in a particular time period get what the time period was but it she fell in love with the show and so she started writing fan fiction for the show and then she was doing more and more research into the time period and fell in love with the time period and then became basically came up with her own story and wrote her own books set in that time period that are completely independent of any other story. Hmm. And it started from being a fan of this show that she saw on PBS. That is fantastic. Yeah. I'm one of those, if you're going to do something that you love, start with something that you, that you truly love and truly enjoy I see nothing wrong with drawing fan art or writing fan fiction or all things like that as long as you stay within the bounds of certain restrictions within that. In other words, you don't make money off of it. But you use that as your stepping stone, your building block to building your own style, your own work, your own stories. And it you can do that, and it's absolutely possible, as this one lady had showed. I would agree. It's a great training ground. Yeah. And it helps, especially if you're writing, you're writing fan stories and you share them with other fans and you get feedback. Mm -hmm. This is cool. You need to work on this a little bit. And by exploring an existing world, you see how far the rabbit hole goes and you start asking what if questions that maybe right. the original author hadn't thought of. Maybe you might inspire the author to go in a different direction that they may not have thought of before. Mm -hmm. And that has happened where a fan story has inspired the author to go, Oh, interesting question. Hmm, let's see a new story comes out of it mm -hmm. from the original author. And by exploring an existing world, when you start creating your own worlds, you delve even deeper 
into that world and the what if questions. Exactly. And as a whole, writing gets better because yes. that, that encourages other people to do more research and more things. And Yes. Yeah. And I love seeing that. I do. I love seeing it. And that's why I'm always, I'm one of those people, I will always support fan films and independent films and mm-hmm. independent writing and, and artists and stuff. Because those are the people who are going to bring us forward creatively. Exactly. And some of those stories, like, you know, we mentioned way back when, why I did Kaze, mm-hmm. some of those stories that are written by people who are just like, oh, well, I don't know if this would ever be made. Some of those have such power and so much more power than many of the films that actually do make it to the big screen. Oh, I know. And a lot, and the studios, the big studios, they just want to play it safe. Hmm. And they don't, they don't like taking a chance on something. Every once in a while, they'll take a small chance. But your better bet is to get it started, get it out there. And you'll find yourself with a much, odds are, you'll find yourself with a much larger fan base than you would expect. Like when I'm writing my books, I figure if 12 people pick up that book and read it, it's worth putting out there. And you and I both know that it's going to be more than 12 people. (laughs) Right, right. And if you write the book that you yourself have always wanted to read and Uh got tired of waiting around for somebody else to do, you're going to connect with everybody who was on the same wavelength as you. Yep. And tell the story that you have always wanted to see told, Mm -hmm. but nobody has ever dared to do so. Yeah. And there you go. And, it's, and it applies to writing. It applies to comics. It applies to film, animation, any creative storytelling endeavor, even song, telling stories through song. Songs are, are, are miniature plays. And oh, yes. doing that thing, what we're talking about right now is exactly why I'm doing the music writing, singing, songwriting, performing that I'm doing. Yeah. And also doing dream song, intellectual property. Mm-hmm. That's... That's dreaming out loud, and that's what I would love to see other people do too. And I, I would fully encourage anybody that if you've got, if you got a dream, if you've got a story, get it out there, get it told. Yeah. Do it, because nobody else is going to do it for you. Right, and just think, what if, what if Spielberg hadn't done that? Right. Or George Lucas. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look at Star Wars. Mm-hmm. How many different studios he went through before he finally got the first Star Wars movie out? Right, or J.K. Rowling with publishers for Harry Potter. Yep. And so many others that it's like nobody would would even try. Look at Joss Whedon and Firefly. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously. All of these different stories, they went through studio after studio after publisher after publisher after all these big companies and they were like no 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 and then finally this little this this one guy said okay we'll try it you don't necessarily have to do that because the way social media and the internet and all the tools that are at your fingertips now even just now you don't have to wait for things to advance really much further at all you can do it now Mm -hmm. and the tools are right there and you can get it out there and you can get it noticed. And just look at just going into fan in into independent film productions, the things that just people do with a few friends, look at the film festivals and all the films that go through those and some of the work that has been done with those. There's one's called made eight megahertz. Hmm. All it is is one camera in a room with a girl and a radio. That's it. And it's very well done wow that's really cool yeah and all they had was a camera one person one girl and a radio and in a a room and that's all you see and yet you because of the way it was done and the way the story was written and told through her you see in your mind's eye a whole universe of what's going on or what's been going on oh that's beautiful it's it it was great. It's it's dark, but it was really really good. You and know, on you the can lighter that. yeah, um, you can. Um, and on the lighter side of that, there's a there's an indie film that if your listeners, I'd, it's no longer a Netflix instant, I don't think, 
but if they can get it by DVD or whatever, The Man from Earth. Mm. That's a bunch of people. It's probably about eight or so people in a cabin mm-hmm. talking. And it's one of the most profound, moving, thought-provoking stories that I've ever encountered. Yeah. You don't need to have you know, expensive production and a lot of effects and stuff just to tell a story. You can tell a story literally with a light, a room, and a camera, and you, yep. or you and a few friends. That's what I am admonishing uh, the, well, the readers of my books, to, because visual effects, animation, serves one purpose and one purpose alone, to further the story. Yes, exactly. It's not, you don't do the visuals in spite of the story. You do the visuals because of the story. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily need all of that. Right. Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, Babylon mm-hmm. 5, they're human stories. Mm-hmm. Even uh, Zootopia, it's a yes. human story. Oh, very. It touches our hearts as living beings. The visuals just serve to allow that story to be told as best as it can be. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it's been really awesome talking to you. Do you have anything that you want to tell any of your fans that might be listening? Oh, gosh. Um, well, thanks for tuning in. And uh, if you are fans of Kaze or the books that I've written or the other shows, thanks for keeping the faith and daring to dream out loud. And I encourage you all to check out a Real Dream Song on Twitter. We're still waiting to uh, to get the uh, the YouTube official channel, the personalized channel name up there. But keep following her because that is where I'm going to be releasing all of the new songs that I'm going to be writing. And probably even releasing the songs that haven't been released that are finished now. And that's where the animation is going to be going and you know the technology pushing forward to try to see how much can be done with this, you know, the resources that any of us can have access to. Yes. So that's that's where I'm going to be dreaming out loud. And um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you both. It was great talking to you. It really was. And I think with that, Alex? I'll say good night. Good night. Be well. It's a pleasure meeting you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Good night, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, we're not quiet.